Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Hey, Laura, we're back in cold rain. Bird watching. This is amazing. Haven't been here in a long time. I know. My God, the air out here is incredible. There's a lot of flowers that are blooming. It's just beautiful to be back here. It's kind of spooky, actually, Sarah. Spooky. Spooky. I think there's a lot of ghosts of alumni past in this old Harvard house. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. Lots of pictures of old alumni staring down at me. Yeah, that's right. So this week, we have an episode and we've entitled this When Love Becomes Deadly, Yale's Richard Heron and Bonnie Garland. And this is a Yale case, and we've done a lot of history on Yale, so we're not going to go back into the history of Yale, but we thought maybe we would introduce a few interesting facts about Yale. So both Bonnie Garland and Richard Heron went to Yale. And Yale was originally named the Collegiate School, but Yale University, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, took its new name in 1701 in honor of Elihu Yale, the governor of the East Indian Company, for his gifts to the school. It is the same East Indian company that led to the infamous Boston Tea Party boycott, Sarah. Because they would import tea. Exactly. And their taxation was one of the major events that led to the American Revolution. They also have the oldest collegiate newspaper that's still in existence, still running. And one fact I found very, very interesting, as you think of dorms, I know my freshman dorm was a suite, but Yale has a special dorm room that is reserved for Vanderbilts. And this is a very ornate suite that was built by Cornelius Vanderbilt when his son died in his junior year at Yale. So this was built in honor of him and is reserved for anyone, a member of the Vanderbilt family who attends Yale. And the last person who lived in this suite was actually Anderson Cooper, class of 89, Yale. Wow. So I guess there's some big advantages to being a Vanderbilt. I would, among others. (laughs) Among others. Among others. That's a little background, but let's get to the case. It does take place. The meeting of our two main characters takes place at Yale. That's right. And when you look, there's sort of a faded, very unremarkable 70s photo of both Bonnie Garland and Richard Heron. And it was taken at a Yale event. And really, the calmness of that snapshotted moment really belies the terrible events that would unfold. So let's get to how they met. 
So they met at Yale and they became a couple. They became really inseparable. The context of this was the 70s. Free love was kind of abounding. But Richard and Bonnie's love was very cautious and tentative. They were both virgins when they met, and they held off for months before consummating and taking each other's virginity. So Richard grew up hardcore Catholic, and we'll get into his background in a little bit. And he had dated other women, but he had had these problematic relationships with women. So in one case, it sort of sounds like he had sort of a casual relationship with this woman. It was casual on her side. He became completely obsessed with her and kind of flipped out when it wasn't, this was prior to Bonnie. So when he met Bonnie, he described that as the happiest day of his life, which was November 2nd of 1974. She was a freshman. He was a senior. And they both... I think almost found each other out of insecurity. Bonnie was kind of overweight. I think she felt like she's young. He was definitely insecure. And part of that was that he came from a very different background. Right. And part of that may have been him not feeling maybe like he fit in at Yale because of his background. What was his background like? He was born in 1953. Richard had grown up in a poor, largely Mexican neighborhood in L.A. He did really shine there. He had an IQ of 130 and was like the golden boy at his high school. And, you know, Laura, like we've seen so many times, Richard went from being like a big fish in his East L.A. high school to entering like academic shark waters in the Ivy League. Right. And we see this a lot when you're the best and the brightest in your town and then you go to a school where you're one among many. That's right. And because he's competing against years of prep school and he didn't do well academically at Yale, but he didn't really rise to the occasion as well. I mean, he didn't really rise to the challenge and he's just stopped trying academically. He kind of like coasted like so many of us do or did at at college. But he did well enough to get by. Yeah. And the Garlands really did not like Richard and his influence on Bonnie. And she had sort of become kind of withdrawn and sullen and her grades were suffering. Much is made of like they didn't like his background. But the truth is like both Bonnie's parents came from humble backgrounds. Her father actually washed dishes to get through Yale. So I think that that was more of a press thing because I think they probably really would have related to him. They didn't like his effect on Bonnie. It had nothing to do with his background. I think they respected somebody who worked their way up. Both of her parents had. They had both been from, and the mother had gone to Mount Holyoke. They had both come from Humble humble backgrounds and really worked hard to get where they were. Bonnie was brought up in an upper middle class neighborhood of Scarsdale. And Sarah and I have been to Scarsdale and it's a beautiful upper class bedroom community, quiet. She went to the Madeira School, which is a very posh private school. And this cuts to another case we've covered, which is Jean Harris, who was at a different time period, the headmistress of the Madeira School. So Bonnie, because of her father's hard work, really did have a very privileged life. So they did come from different economic means, but I don't think that really made any difference in the relationship. I don't think so. I I mean, I think if Richard had been some like go-getter and really brought out the best in each other, I think in a weird way, they just kind of like melted into each other and became kind of stagnant. And I'm sure Bonnie's parents picked up on that. And I just wanted to mention though, too, so we do have another case 
that we covered that happened in Scarsdale, and that's the famous Scarsdale diet murder. The Tarnow or Jean Harris case. Yeah. If you want to check that out, that's episode 11. I cannot believe how we are close to 50 episodes. Right. A year ago, we did that. Yeah, it's crazy. As Laura mentioned, we visited Scarsdale last summer. I can't imagine a bigger contrast between Richard's upbringing, which is cheek by jowl, very poor L.A., very working class, if you were lucky kind of thing. Sure. And Scarsdale, which is just treed avenues, big, beautiful houses separated from each other. Expensive. I mean, I remember (laughs) expensive little markets. Everything is very manicured. It really is kind of an oasis. Absolutely. But I do want to talk a little bit about first love. When you first fall in love with somebody, that tender age, there is something very fragile and very special about that. And I think that's what they had for a while. Right. And very consuming. And I think the line between consuming and obsession is sometimes hard to draw that line. And obviously here, the line gets crossed. For sure. But I think many of us or most of us can probably relate to the newness of a young first love and it just completely enveloping you and it's all you think about and want and you kind of reason goes out the door a little because it's kind of all about that person. I agree. And I think in their love, Bonnie and Richard took two very different paths. I think Richard's whole identity had kind of become entwined with his relationship to Bonnie. And then Bonnie, on the other hand, when she gets to Yale, she's kind of overweight. She's kind of insecure. She kind of comes into her own. And mind you, it's also the 70s. It's not like Richard came from a very Catholic background where it's like you meet the person you marry, you settle down. The person you sleep with is the person you spend your life with. I think Bonnie had other ideas. Right. And this is a big time of cultural change for women and the feminist movement. And there's a lot going on in the 70s. And I think Bonnie, like many of us, went to college and fell in love and then was ready to move on. Things changed. She grew. And as we may discuss, Bonnie suffered from some depression at Yale and she went up getting some help. And as she got help, she did come into her own more. And I think as she did, she started to outgrow Richard. Yeah. This was March of 1977. Bonnie had started to see a psychiatrist. Actually, by that time, Bonnie was already dating other people. We should mention Richard was older than her. So he had already graduated from Yale and was now in graduate school and encouraging Bonnie to speed up her classes, to graduate early, to marry him. And that was really his plan. He had this plan that she would graduate early and they would marry. And this was his life plan. Yes. Well, this was not Bonnie's life plan. It wasn't. I mean, look, who wants to settle down at 20? I think it's almost you want to date around. You want to explore being with other people. You want to explore the single life. That's what she told him. Some people want to settle down at 20 and that's fine. And some people don't. And she didn't. She fell in love with him and she then outgrew him and that happens and he couldn't accept that as we will come to see. Yeah. And I think the rubber really hits the road. When Bonnie went on a European tour with the Yale Choir, Bonnie had a really beautiful voice. And so she sang with the Yale Choir. And I'd read this thing about Bonnie. They didn't accept freshmen generally, but she was like persistent and she sang for them and they were like, okay. So Mm -hmm. she had been singing with the Yale Choir. They went on a European tour 
And she actually kind of got more involved with this one person who was part of the Whiffenpoofs, the oldest acapella group in the universe, in Ivy League. I'm not sure if I had dated somebody from the Whiffenpoofs. I would really broadcast that because of the name, but whatever, man. We don't want to offend any Whiffenpoofs we have. (laughs) No, it's one of those intentionally fluffy names. They're spoofing with that name. But anyway. So she was seeing somebody, this guy named Jim, when she was in Europe. And even though Richard was writing to her daily and becoming more and more obsessed, he wasn't receiving any letters from her until the end. And when he did, essentially, it was like a kindly termed Dear John letter, like saying that basically she wanted to live like a single girl for a while, that she still loved him, but she wanted to see other people. Yeah, I think she was kind of trying to let him down easy because Mm -hmm. she did love him and she didn't want to hurt him. Yeah. But Richard thought there was still hope for them. And he quickly travels to New York to try to basically win her back. And when he gets to New York, he finds out she had gone to New Haven with friends directly after getting back from Europe. And that with friends is in quotes, by the way. Clearly... I think it was devastating for him. He was really in love with her or obsessed with her, whatever the line is there. And then he's expecting, oh, gosh, she's going to get back from Europe and we're going to reconcile. We're going to figure this out. And she just kind of goes away to New Haven. And so he goes to New York trying to win her back. He was desperate. He was desperate. And I think in a kind of a last ditch attempt to win her back, he goes and her parents agree that he can stay at the house. I mean, I don't think anybody sees a threat in this. And the mother's only stipulation is that he, he leaves leave by, by Thursday, by July 7th, because Bonnie has applied to summer school at Columbia and she wants her to be well rested and recalibrate from the Europe right. trip and everything like that. So but, it's just kind of a little three day visit. Yeah. And Bonnie, I think, is planning to let him down kind of easily. And that's kind of how they go into this trip. Unfortunately, that's not how things end up. So on the night of July 7th, 1977, Bonnie and Richard were at her parents' house trying to figure out the next steps of their relationship. For Bonnie, she was young. And like we said, she wanted to go explore being with other people. As she suggested an open relationship, she was like, hey, let's stay together, but see other people. Come on, remember being 20? Were you ready to settle down with one person? Richard, on the other hand, could not deal with the concept of sharing his Bonnie with anyone else. His Bonnie Beautiful, as he called her. As Bonnie slept, he watched her and he ruminated. And he was flipping through an old Sports Illustrated magazine. And I don't know, something snapped. And he made a decision and he found a hammer in the Garland's house and he struck Bonnie in the head three times, cracking her skull open. And he would later say that he made that decision while flipping through those magazines, that something just snapped and he decided that he needed to kill her and then kill himself. Remember, he's going back to New York to convince Bonnie to be exclusive with him. He thinks that he can cajole her into coming back to what they had. And it's impossible. She doesn't want to. And so when he really realizes that and they had sex that night, and I think that was part of his see, this is what we have. He snapped. You're right. So then after he struck Bonnie in the head three times, cracking her skull open, he then drove away shirtless and bloody. He was trying to find a cliff to drive off of. His plan had been to 
murder Bonnie because she would not be his, quote unquote. He was planning murder-suicide. He actually took one of their cars and he's driving around aimlessly and he breaks the rearview mirror to get the glass because he thinks he's going to slit his wrists. Yep. And he basically drives the car until it runs out of gas. And he ends up in a place called Coxsackie, which is about 100 miles north of Scarsdale, where he turned himself into a priest at St. Mary's Church, who then called the local police. Now, let's add that he was in the car for two hours contemplating that before he turned himself in. So there is a time lapse here, a long time lapse. He runs out of gas. He's sitting in the car contemplating suicide, turning himself in. This is going on for hours. As we will come to find out, Bonnie is not dead. Ugh, which is the most mortifying part right. of this whole thing. And he thought he had killed her. Yeah. I think he definitely thought that. And, and, he, and he didn't deny it when he talks to the priest and he talks to the police that come. And he also doesn't present. Richard Heron didn't come off. I mean, other than his like shirtless dishevelment, he really didn't come off as being a murderer. He struck them as being a nice guy. He was getting ready to start a PhD program at George Washington. I mean, this was not your typical suspect. He had gone suspect. to Yale. Yes. You know. But unbeknownst to Bonnie's family, her father had gotten on the train to Manhattan from Scarsdale, none of them having any idea. They thought she was asleep in bed. And the really heartbreaking thing to me, Laura, is that when the cops went to the Garlands, like her mother's confused. She's like, of course, my daughter's in bed. It was still pretty early in the morning. When her mom went into Bonnie's bedroom, Bonnie was still gurgling and like trying to breathe. She was still alive. She had been lying there for hours. hours. And hours. so she was rushed to the hospital. And Bonnie Garland died later that night at around 1030. And Heron, who had fully confessed, was arrested for murder. So now we get into more of the controversial part of this case, because this case takes on a life of its own, because when Richard Heron is arrested, really the Gale community rushes to back Heron, not the victim. And this is something I'm not sure we would see today. And he has members of the Catholic Church, particularly a nun by the name of Ramona Pena, who come to his defense as well. And the Garland's understandably were appalled that there was this outpouring of support for Richard, but not for their murdered daughter. And I would be too. I, Sarah, know? I don't find it shocking from the church. I think that that's something the church does in many circumstances. However, the Yale community, his classmates, alumni, I mean, professors, it's like they all kind of rush to back him up, not just verbally. I mean, they put their money where their mouth is yeah. and they start raising money for him. Someone sold their house to raise legal fees for Richard. A Yale alumni doctor, and he basically got looked at more. He's like, they thought he's so upset he's going to kill himself if he has to remain in jail. And they basically, within a month of the murder, he's out. No, he gets out on bail. Yeah, he's exactly. out on bail. And the Garland family is just mortified. And it's months and months and months. I think it's nine months before the trial actually gets going. And once the trial gets going, you've got two pretty heavy hitters. We'll talk about the prosecution as a guy named Bill Frederick. And the defense attorney is a guy, very famous lawyer by the name of Jack Lippman, who takes a much reduced fee for this case. And he says it's because he's so concerned with Richard. I think it was also due to the high profile nature of this case. We had read the first non-police related homicide in Scarsdale. That's right. That's right. And they were both Yale graduates. Come right. on. I mean, if they had been from Bed-Stuy. I don't think they would have gotten right. the ink that they did. But the newspapers were all over this story. 
And really, you have to think about the context of when this was too. It's the 70s. And literally, the throngs of psychiatrists that are going in and around this case. But they do make some very interesting points. And just for the sake of argument, Laura is going to take the (laughs) stance of the prosecutor, and I will take the stance of the defense attorney. Because we haven't had a good fight in a little while, and I think it's maybe <laughs> days, time. Maybe, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's maybe good to... You came here for an argument. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, it's a pretty cut and dry prosecution. You have a murder weapon, you have a confession. There's really nothing to... It's a fairly cut and dry prosecution. He's admitted it. There's really... Now we're just talking about degrees of guilt. And I think that the how and the who are not in question at all. It's the why. And I think the why is really what the central argument in court is about. Bill Frederick says, look, they poll the jury, basically, and they say, have you ever been in love with somebody and they break up with you? It sucks. Did you kill that person? No. Did you go and go on a bender and kick your door in and freak out. And yes, you maybe have done all of those things, but you did not make that decision to kill that person. So the thing that Jack Littman did, which I think was pretty powerful. Remember, it's a different time. It's the 70s. I think now this would be viewed very differently by a jury today, but still at that time, the portrait he was trying to paint of Richard was like, here you have this kid who came from a very rough beginning, had no violence in his background at all. And that what made him snap is pretty interesting. He points out that Richard grew up with a very violent alcoholic father, that his mother had to work all the time. She was largely absent. And that what the psychiatrists say, and I'm not agreeing with it tacitly, I'm just saying that this is what Littman had presented to the jury was that Richard was so dependent, something in his personality became so dependent on Bonnie and their love that like literally he was fighting for his psychological life. I think all of that may be true, but none of that mitigates the crime to me. I think in almost any murder, we have some deeper rooted reason or situation. But I look at the crime scene photos and I look at the result and the result is death. And she's gone forever for her family. But not only that, you can make the point. I think that's an interesting point that somebody is fighting for their psychological life. Don't forget, Bonnie was fighting for her actual life for hours with her head bashed in. And I know I'm taking the process. You're you're, you're kind of a shitty defense attorney. I'm a totally... (laughs) I'm not sure. We talk about the times being so different, but Jack Lippman would almost exaggerate this defense and use this later in the Robert Chambers, Jennifer Levin case, because he winds up being Robert Chambers attorney and in that case, really, really vilifying and and sullying Jennifer Levin and using that as his defense. But I see that here in a lesser degree. But explain to our listeners how he did that. Robert Chambers killed Jennifer Levin in Central Park in the late 80s, and he used a rough sex defense, basically saying that Jennifer Levin had attacked him during rough sex, and he basically had fought back and killed her, which makes it a manslaughter case. But also... So her promiscuity came into her. And well, what Jack Littman did was pulled up her diaries, her partying, her all kinds of lifestyle issues to sully her name, to make it look more like she was kind of 
asking for this. Why are you in Central Park late at night with this strange guy putting the victim on trial? And I see that a little here because I see that we get so much sympathy for Heron and so much like, he's just this great, really smart guy. Who snapped. He just fell in love. And if she had just loved him back, she wouldn't have died. And that seems to be what Lippmann is basically implying. Well, I think what Lippmann did, too, is put on evidence that Bonnie was dating other people that she was wanting to explore. I'm not sure if I feel like maybe in the Robert Chambers case, he did that. I'm not sure he really did that in this case. I think it was just sort of the reality of what Bonnie was up to, which was at times dating other people behind Richard's back. I don't think it justifies the homicide. I think it is the more interesting part to me is Richard's own psychological makeup, that he was so obsessed. Something caused him to snap. So what is that thing? And I think that's what Littman wanted to explore and what Frederick desperately wanted to stay away from in the courtroom, because he knew that if the jury could kind of feel sympathy for Richard, it would definitely mitigate the sentence. And it actually ended up working. And it did. And I mean, the Garland family felt that this trial and the press that surrounded it was the second assault on their family. Yes. And so I question his motives more. I agree everyone deserves a defense. But I think there was this kind of a theme of Bonnie should have just kind of agreed to the life he wanted and she wouldn't have died. Which is absurd. Which is absurd. And and I tire somewhat. I mean, obviously, I love true crime and I like to look at the psychological reasons of why, but my husband's brother was murdered and the end result is death. So even if you know as the victim's family, you can know all of those reasons, but your family member is still gone. Of course. Yeah. And I can relate to her parents. The excuses only go far because, you know, this person is still dead. Well, I agree, but I think it's part of our job in looking at these cases is how these murders, how these deaths occur and why. Sure. To me, it's not an excuse. He killed her. He should do his time. And he ended up doing 18 years for manslaughter, though, not first degree because of mitigating mental. Right. And that's why I am interested in why. But I do think you're responsible for the consequences of what you did. And I think there's debate about whether or not that's a fair sentence. I think it's a low sentence for her family. He was given 25 year sentence yes. and paroled after 17. And became a mental health worker in uh, New Mexico. And he spent his time in prison really learning much more about himself and much more about mental illness in general. He did. I mean, it it is. Right. I mean, I know he did. Would he have been a threat to somebody else? I don't know. It doesn't shock me that he did well in prison. He was a very smart man. I'm sure he figured that's the best way to have the most productive life he could was to work the system and do well in prison. I do have sympathy for him. I don't see him as a monster or somebody without conscience, as we've seen in other situations. I think it is a good lesson in how dangerous obsession and love can be. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think it really isn't love, it's obsession, because you wouldn't harm somebody you really love. That's very, very true. I always found this very profound. You know, they say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Hate is yes, still... You, there's still emotion. There's still so much yeah. emotion. And I... There's, there's glass under the skin. Right, right. Because you want to... But, yeah, you know, and he 
unfortunately didn't have the coping skills to allow himself to heal from that relationship and move on with his life, which could have been very productive. He very... could have had a life just like the Garland. Yes. I mean, he was headed in that direction to have a really successful life. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And it really is a tragedy in all sense because his life was ruined. Bonnie's Her, gone. Bonnie's gone. The Garland's lives ruined. Ruined. Scarsdale community, which will be shaken up again in a few years by another infamous crime. I mean, this sleepy little town that really nobody ever wants to be in. I mean, this is where people with a lot of money move to not be in the paper, yes. to not be noticed. Right, to it, like close their close gate. Close the gate. You yeah, know? I mean, it is very, and in five years, we have these two major crimes occur in this area and make Scarsdale actually pretty infamous. Exactly. And there's an Ivy League connection for both of them. I want to end this episode, though, Laura, with a quote that I found, which I, I, I think really summed it up, at least for Richard, I have to say. The saddest thing is to be a minute to someone when you have made them your eternity. And that's a quote from Sanober Khan. So... I think that really sums it up. And I think that it's probably profound. And I think most of us who've been through breakups or heartache can really relate to that. But fortunately, most of us have better coping skills than Richard Heron. I haven't, though. I swear to God, like the obsessive love thing for me, if I could get that time back, I want that time back that I spent mulling over people who I was definitely a minute to them. And... (laughs) (laughs) What a waste of time. I'll spare the listeners my story. But uh, Laura's the ender. I'm the ND, I think. uh, No. (laughs) No, it's spare the innocent. Um, But this was another interesting case. We got away from Harvard for a week, which is always... Thank God. And out to Colerain. So listen... Out to Colerain. We have some great episodes lined up for you guys and just psyched that we're all coming out of COVID and we're, things are freeing up and we really appreciate everybody's support. We do. And the Ivy League murders cases have not dried up. We have tons of them to bring to you and lots of juicy ones and some really cool collaborations coming up. So thanks for hanging in there with us and we will see you again next week. Murder, murder, murder.